Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Kai Wortmann, working in philosophy of education at the University of Tübingen, and I'm here today with Robin Silikates, who holds the chair for social philosophy at the Free University of Berlin. We want to talk about his new book, Critique as Social Practice, Critical Theory and Social Self-Understanding. In this book, Silikates focuses on the possibility of social critique without either diagnosing ideological delusions and false consciousness, but also without just following whatever positions the social agents hold themselves. I must confess I'm really enthusiastic about the book because A, it is a real page-turner. It reads like a crime thriller, at least if you're interested in these kinds of questions. B, it's, it's clearly structured. And C, it is interdisciplinary in the best sense of the word. It tackles a systematic problem by drawing on philosophy, but also heavily on sociology. Um, and also with an eye on methodological issues in anthropology and even psychoanalysis. So I'm really happy to ta- have the author here. Uh, Robin, welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Before talking about the book, can you maybe start off by saying a little bit about your background? What brought you into philosophy and what made you interested in the issue of critique? Sure. Um, So, yeah, let me again thank you for the invitation to be on this podcast and thanks also for your kind words on the book. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Um, So um, I was already interested in uh, philosophical issues in my time in high school Um, Although neither of my parents or any other member of my family had studied, um, you know, issues in history, politics, and so on always uh, took my interest, but I was always interested in the more philosophical aspects of them. Um, I was the first in my family to study, so philosophy was certainly not the obvious choice. My parents were quite anxious that this would not be, uh, you know, very wise with regard to my own future. Um, So I studied political science and philosophy, and, you know, they said, well, basically, at least you can become a politician or something later. Um, But as, you know, I went along, I got more and more interested in the philosophical issues. My real passion was philosophy, so I followed that. I got the chance to do a PhD at some later point after studying in Göttingen and Berlin and New York for some time. Um, And this possibility of doing a PhD in philosophy basically was my, uh, as you know, as for many people, my, my ticket into, um, uh, you know, following an academic career, something I hadn't really envisaged at the beginning of my studies, obviously. Um, so I got interested in issues, uh, especially in political and social philosophy. And uh, I quickly realized that um, there's a particular paradigm that uh, seemed particularly relevant and uh, intriguing to me, and that was the paradigm of critical theory in the Frankfurt School tradition, And what attracted me to critical theory was its commitment to be more than just an armchair theory, its commitment to contribute to emancipatory social change and to do so on the basis of an analysis of what is wrong in our social reality. So while, you know, while I was always interested in philosophical issues, also and already in high school, I think I was 
um, interested in you know practical challenges or challenges that I experienced or saw in in our social uh, world. And um, I was really happy to discover that there are philosophical tools we can use to better understand these challenges and to try to address them in in a way that contributes to um, you know uh, changing society for the better. Um, and you know then I wrote my PhD thesis. Uh, it it turned into the book that we're discussing uh, today. It was originally published in German in 2009, I think. Um, and after finishing my PhD, I held my uh, first permanent position at the University of Amsterdam, where um, we had a f- fantastical, a fantastic uh, philosophical community that really allowed me to grow and to you know develop my interests in political philosophy and social philosophy. Um, after several stays in the US at Columbia University and at in Princeton at the Institute for Advanced Study, I then started teaching at the Free University in Berlin, where I currently work, um, a couple of years ago. And here, together with my colleague uh, Rahil Yegi, who's also a critical theorist, I um, direct the Center for Humanities and Social Change, uh, which has become a kind of international hub for critical theories. So the issues that I you know, got interested in during my studies and that I, that I pursued uh, during my PhD and that are discussed in the book are still with me today, although, of course, I sort of, you know, branched out and developed different interests, um, but they are all still related to this initial um, attraction to critical theory as a kind of philosophy that that really speaks to social and political challenges and that pursues this emancipatory, emancipatory aim rather than just being, uh, you know, a theoretical enterprise for its own sake. Okay, great. Um, maybe we can now turn to the book a little bit. Um, as I said, the book is very well organized and in co- it uh, consists of three major parts describing three models of, of critique, what you call the model of the break, the model of symmetry and the model of reconstruction. As far as I can see, the first model of the break is problematic for you. The second model of symmetry offers some solutions for these problems, but again, then you find different problems in that model so you kind of end up with proposing the third model of reconstruction and maybe we can just talk us through these three models is that okay yeah sure um i'd be glad to do so um so maybe it's good to start with um the question or the challenge that motivated um you know my phd thesis and and then the book that that came out of it um so I already mentioned that I was attracted to critical theory for this, um, you know, practical aim uh, that critical theory pursues, namely to contribute to um, emancipation, um, to have a practical uh, purpose, um, as it were, um, uh, to have an emancipatory aim. Uh, so you know, um, analyzing the obstacles to struggles for emancipation and um, trying to expand the possibilities of these uh, struggles. But at the same time, critical theory also is committed to being grounded in practice. Um, it you know, distinguishes itself. That's already a point that Marx makes, but it um, comes back in the early writings of um, the founding generation of the Frankfurt School, especially in Horkheimer's and Adorno's early writings, that um, critical theory, in contrast to what they call traditional theory, is not only critical with regard to the aim it pursues, it's also critical with regard to its own um, you know, it, it being anchored in practice, it being anchored in social reality. So it's re- self-reflexive. It's supposed to be self-reflexive. It's supposed to take into account the social and historical conditions 
of its own theory formation, and it is supposed to be grounded in the social and political struggles and, in a way, the oppositional experiences and forms of consciousness um, that are articulated in these struggles, struggles to which it then also tries to contribute. Um, so these two aspects of critical theory seemed really important to me, but at the same time, there's also an obvious tension between them, because if you think that you know you need critical theory in the first place in order to contribute an emancipatory process that somehow got stuck due to certain structural obstacles, um, it's unclear whether you can just unproblematically sort of ground that same theory in um, you know the practices, the sorts of consciousness that you find out there in social uh, reality. If they were already uh, sort of fully um, you know operative, you would need critical theory in the first place. Um, so the, the so the, the 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 challenge in a way is to um, really think about how this dual claim to be based in practice in struggles and to aim at practice at emancipation how that can be understood and there is a risk not just of self misunderstanding on the side of the theorist so that the critical theorist in the end comes to see her role as being you know more independent from the social practices than um, the initial claim suggests. But there is also um, a further and more important risk that I you know, discuss in the first part, especially um, of um, ending up with a more, let's say, objectivist um, or scientific understanding of the role of the theorist, of the critic, that actually ends up undermining the emancipatory aspiration of theory. So critique itself can have anti-emancipatory effects that's a claim I basically want to show in the first uh, part where I um, engage with, you know, what you rightly recalled, I, I, I characterize as the model of the break. Um, so basically a strand of critical theory that sees the need to radically break with the perspective and the self-understanding of the agents precisely because these agents are subject to ideology, precisely because they are suffering from false consciousness. They don't understand the social mechanisms of domination that they themselves reproduce in the practices they engage in. So they don't know what they're doing, as you know the saying goes, and it takes um, critical theory to sort of break through this veil of deception, this veil of ideology, and to properly understand um, the mechanisms of the reproduction of social relations of domination that are secured by these forms of misrecognition and um, ideology. Uh, so that's the that's in a way the starting point, and that's um, you know what I take the first model uh, to primarily consist in. Now I go into some uh, details there. I show how this model has its uh, source in a way in the founding fathers, as they're sometimes called, of sociology, especially in Emil Durkheim's work. I trace it to um, a very influential and famous twentieth-century um, social theorist and sociologist Pierre Bourdieu. Um, and I want to show that even someone like Bourdieu, who actually tries to overcome um, the limits of objectivism in social science, who is committed, you know, who's famous as a practice theorist, uh, even he, in the end, um, uh, you know, um, falls into the trap of um, uh, a kind of orthodox juxtaposition of science and critique on the one hand, and the naive perspective of ordinary agents who are subject to structural forms of misrecognition on the other hand. So there is this kind of epistemological break that really motivates Bourdieu to move 
um, you know, to the Durkheimian side, as it were, uh, to um, argue for the need for a kind of objectivist understanding of society that, that doesn't rely on the self-understanding of agents, precisely because these agents are um, structurally naive, as it were. And they can't really understand the practices they engage in. They can't really understand the conditions under which these practices unfold. And they are forms of um, consciousness, um, uh, which, I, which Bourdieu calls doxa. Yeah? So it's, it's also recalling the old platonic distinction between doxa on the one hand, mere opinion, and episteme or truth, um, uh, you know, knowledge on the other hand. Um, that is something that Bourdieu really resurrects in a way and says, well, um, you know, ordinary agents, they have practical sense. They act like fish in water. They don't really understand what's going on. They just um, sort of act naturally. Doing, doing what comes naturally would be a formula to describe to describe their way of being um, immersed in practice. But that doesn't allow for the kind of critical and reflexive distanciation that he thinks um, the theorist and the sociologist then have to uh, bring in. So he, you know, he ends up with all these dichotomies um, that I think are really uh, problematic and that suggest that there's a kind of structural lack of reflexivity, um, a structural inability to um, take up the critical standpoint on the part of critical, uh, on the part of ordinary agents. Uh, sorry, and that that's why we need um, critical social science now with an objectivist uh, kind of um, ambition to break through uh, the veil of uh, practice that shields ordinary agents from really understanding what is going on. So that's basically, in a nutshell, the first part. And I end by suggesting several problems uh, for this um, model, um, which I don't think we have to go through here in detail. But the, I saw this in, there are normative problems. This just doesn't seem to be very respectful of ordinary agents. Uh, there are political problems, which I think are actually more uh, relevant, because um, as uh, you know, I mean, Bourdieu was also a very engaged critical intellectual who wanted to, you know, support social movements and struggles for emancipation. But it's very hard to see how that can be reconciled with this more uh, objectivist kind of understanding of the role uh, of social science that doesn't really, um, you know, attribute um, the kind of critical capacities to agents that they obviously need in order to engage in uh, social struggles that are leading uh, anywhere, so there's there's a tension here, which which I think uh, is problematic. But more importantly, there's an, a methodological objection. It's simply unclear how the sociologist is, or the critical theorist more generally, is supposed to achieve that kind of objective standpoint that uh, ordinary agents seem to be structurally incapable of achieving. So, what kind of knowledge is that? How does the critical theorist? access it and why then is it uh, really not possible for ordinary agents apparently uh, to access that standpoint or that that knowledge and and finally i look in detail at what i call the empirical objection which is basically a historical and sociological even ethnographic point to a certain extent where i you know build on the work of um, authors uh, such as um, uh, importantly the the anthropologist james scott um, who shows that, uh, you know, before we say, um, well, you know, obviously the agents are subject to ideology because they don't really openly criticize or rebel against um, the conditions under which they live, we should really look uh, in detail and we should really look for uh, the maybe not so visible forms of practice, practices of resistance, practices of critique, oppositional forms of consciousness that are existing, that's the empirical point, in almost every context. So this idea that somehow agents are 
um, you know, passive victims of the structures of domination, that they are blinded by ideology, that they don't understand what is going on, that they don't resist um, these forms of domination, that's itself um, an unwarranted claim on the part of critical theorists, because if you actually look at social reality, you will find sort of very complex and um, very heterogeneous um, uh, uh, forms of critique, forms of critical consciousness, forms of resistance that could provide a starting point for um, you know, this ambition that I talked about earlier um, to ground critical theory in the social practices, in the struggles uh, of its age. So the, the, what struck, struck me um, was not only this kind of epistemological break between the agents and the critic, but also that uh, Bourdieu seems to claim that in order to emancipate uh, the agents need the knowledge that he as a sociologist, as the social critic has. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was really um, struck me when I recently watched uh, the documentary about him. I don't know whether you know it, uh, Sociology as a Combat Sport. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's great. And the last scene was so, um, I don't know, intriguing to me because it, it shows a discussion, as you said, Bourdieu, a great um, public intellectual, a professor at the Collège de France, so one of the most, oh, the most prestigious uh, academic institution in, in France. So he, he joins a discussion in a, in a community center in the banlieue, so a, a very poor neighborhood, and discusses with um, a, a full audience uh, social issues, their situation, their struggles with great patience and, and enthusiasm. And he ends this discussion by saying something like, um, there is this great sociology book Please read it. It was written for you. If you don't read this, you're idiots. Mm -hmm. And and I thought, oh man, this 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 is so contradictory to his own um, way of of discussing. He perfor performed, don't know, three hours uh, uh, before. So mm -hmm. this kind of break was to me not only a, an epistemological, but also a, a performative or a, mm -hmm. a, a break in power, so to speak. Yeah, no, that's a that's a very interesting observation, and I, you know, I think it's important to notice that also my own discussion of Bourdieu. I mean, I'm not trying to say that somehow substantially his work is not useful. I mean, it's extremely important, I think, and he has yeah, um, absolutely. You know, he he has done uh, a huge service not only to sociology but um, you know to society by highlighting and empirically analyzing in in incredible detail. The mechanisms of the reproduction of social power relations and domination, the relations of domination, also in the symbolic realm. So, um, you know, my, my my critique in a way is a purely methodological one, not necessarily of the content of his theory, which I think, um, you know, also critical theorists and social movements have, um, you know, need to pay attention to. That's that's extremely important. But there's this tension that you point out, and the scene from the documentary. Uh, it's really striking in this respect. Uh, another example would be this, uh, you know, this famous book um, that he uh, that he um, uh, co-authored, um, The Weight of the World, which is also on the one hand driven by this ambition to give um, a voice to the affected, um, you know, to give a voice to the suffering of uh, ordinary people in the world. But Bourdieu, you know, he he struggles with this, but he never quite 
gets to actually giving them that voice because he always thinks that something has to be added, that they don't really know how to express it, that you need the theorist to um, be like a mouthpiece, essentially, and um, you know, a spokesperson um, uh, for those people because they themselves can't really um, articulate their experience in the right way. And I don't want to say that this is um, necessarily false, but if it's a general attitude, it leads into precisely this kind of anti-emancipatory um, effect that we discussed earlier and that also the documentary, uh, I think, exemplifies. And it's interesting, and Hello? I refer to that in the book, to see that authors such as Jacques Rancière have early on criticized Bourdieu um, for that kind of anti-emancipatory effect of his own objectivist stance. I mean, this was very polemical. Basically, uh, Rancière said <laughs> Bourdieu is a kind of sociologist king, you know, referring to Plato's um, um, idea of the philosopher king, the sociologist king who uh, somehow, you know, sees the truth and then wants to guide people out of the cave they are stuck in uh, with their own ideological false consciousness and sort of lead them to the truth. That's a bit of a caricature, but I think uh, from what we discussed, we can also see why it does, um, you know, pinpoint a crucial tension and, you know, to a certain extent, I think a real deficit in Bourdieu's own approach. So then you turn in the second uh, part of the book to uh, Luc Boltonski and the model of symmetry. And Boltonski was, of course, a student of Bourdieu, who later also uh, got uh, uh, highly critical about uh, his teacher's uh, work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... Um... Basically, I was looking for alternative approaches that would, um, you know, avoid both the underestimation of agents' reflective and critical capacities, as well as the overestimation of what the sociologist or the critical theorist could bring to the table, as it were. Uh, so avoid this dual problem that I think the first model, the model of the break has, namely you know, that it, that it sidelines the agents and their actually existing critical capacities and practices of critique and resistance, but it, that it also overburdens the critical theorist with a role that she cannot really fulfill for all these different methodological, etc. cetera, um, reasons that, that I discuss. Uh, and then I, I, I sort of turned to a literature that is not that often discussed in, in social philosophy and in critical theory, um, uh, you know, namely the, the early uh, approach um, elaborated by Harold Garfinkel called uh, ethno-methodology, um, which has, you know, been somehow forgotten, but which was quite influential um, uh, in, in early in the 20th century. Um, uh, but then also more prominent maybe voices from recent uh, social theories such as Bruno Latour, who, um, you know, basically says, you know, his slogan is follow the agents. Uh, so, you know, There's a kind of ethnographic turn. We should not um, come with our big theoretical concepts and uh, because these are actually epistemological obstacles, according to Latour, and not the naive conceptions of the agents, but actually the conceptions of the theorists. They are the obstacles. We have to get rid of them. And we should just see what agents do in practice. And uh, Luc Boltonski is um, the, the, the theorist, I think, who um, developed the most complex and also Uh, I think the strongest version of that, um, what I call methodological egalitarianism, yeah? this idea that we should take agents seriously and that we should start from their practices uh, of critique um, and of justification. So what Boltonski and some of his co-authors did 
is to basically replace the as asymmetry that, um, you know, from Durkheim to Bourdieu, a very strong current in social theory was committed to with what they call a principle of symmetry. Uh, the symmetry between um, what, uh, you know, the theorist, um, the sociologist is doing on the one hand and what the ordinary agents are doing on the other hand. They're basically doing the same, just with maybe with different levels of complexity, etc. But there's no, um, there's no, you know, difference in quality or no qualitative break between these two. Um, the second um, thing they introduce is what, what could be called the principle of pluralism. So in Bourdieu's um, uh, view, the social world is characterized by a kind of vicious circle um, of misrecognition and the reproduction of the status quo. So these mutually um, condition each other and it's, it's a kind of self-accelerating spiral, right? Um, and for uh, Boltowski, this is a much too unified and much too homogeneous understanding of social reality. What Boltowski wants to highlight is that there's always a plurality of modes of action and of what he calls regimes of justification and critique that agents can refer to so they can exploit this heterogeneity of the social world for and in their practices of critique. So basically play different forms of justification, different social practices against each other. Uh, third, they uh, reject this idea of ordinary agents as judgmental dopes, to use one term that has been used in criticizing um, Bourdieu. They replace that with um, what could be called the principle of reflexivity. So, you know, agents have these reflective capacities um, and we should focus on what they are actually capable of, capable of doing, not on what they are incapable of doing. And uh, so this uh, taken together brings them to brings Bortowski to a very rich understanding of the practices of critique that uh, ordinary agents are engaging in, um, uh, to a very rich understanding of their quite sophisticated reflexive capacities, their ability to distance themselves from their environment, their ability to engage in um, you know, quite complex discourses of critique that um, they think complicate um, the kind of juxtaposition of theory on the one hand and everyday practice, everyday consciousness on uh, the other hand. And I found that extremely attractive. I thought that was a liberating kind of move. It opens up a whole realm of you know, interesting practices to research for critical theorists because there is a lot of, there is a lot of, you know, there are a lot of practices of critique and resistance out there that I think critical theorists can study um, and that can serve as a starting point for their own um, understanding of society and, and, and what goes wrong in it. But there's also a massive problem with um, this uh, Bortowski approach of the so-called sociology of critique. So basically he says, you know, like from critical sociology to a sociology of critique, we should just sociologically describe and analyze the practices of critique that are out there. But there are, two, there, there are two problems I think this approach runs into, and Boltowski himself has actually um, more recently come to see those, and you know, he, he turned himself to a more critical understanding of the task of sociology in response to, you know, I was in discussing it with him as well. I'm not saying that you know, he responded to my criticism, but it's a conversation, and I think he realized, especially in, in taking critical theory more seriously, that the sociology of critique might be limited in certain respects. And in my view, there are two limitations. I mean, one is that um, there is this kind of presumption 
that actors simply have the capacities and competence, competences that they need in order to engage in the practices of critique that are then being studied. Um, and I think in general, that's a good assumption to make, but it's not one that we can um, you know, simply take for granted. And agents, depending on the social conditions under which they live, will be able to very different degrees to develop these capacities and to um, uh, to exercise them, um, and uh, and the second limitation is that that um, the sociology of critique and that holds for Garfinkel, for Latour, but also for Boltowski, that they simply assume that there is uh, a plurality of, you know, sort of practices of critique that agents can um, engage in, so that you know not only the, the subjective but also the objective conditions of the practice of critique. Um, exist and can serve as a starting point for the sociology of critique. But I think, um, you know, that's simply not the case. I mean, as I said, first, there's the possibility of an unequal distribution of and uh, of structural restrictions on the capacities of subjects to distance themselves from their context and to engage in critique. And uh, second, there is the possibility that, um, you know, certain social contexts and power relations immunize themselves from the pressures of justification. Um, they repress practices of critique or you know, prevent them from developing in the first place. Uh, so we cannot simply assume that um, the capacities and these practices are there, but we have to look at um, uh, conditions that might systematically, and not just contingently, but for structural reasons, that means uh, restrict the possibilities of critique um, uh, that are open to agents. So I think you know this is this is um, something that really then motivates me to to look further and to say that okay there's an important point that this model of symmetry allows us to see namely that um, uh, uh, you know there is there are practices of critique that agents ordinarily have quite sophisticated critical and reflexive capacities but also and that's the the turn into the third model. Uh, we have to look at the social conditions of the development and the exercise of both the capacities and the social practices of critique agents engage in. Critical theory needs to ask which social conditions are necessary for the development and the exercise of these critical capacities, and it cannot avoid the question which uh, social conditions um, sort of structurally prevent these capacities from being developed and these practices from being engaged in and from being effective as practices of critique. So I, I, I tried to summarize these uh, two last points a bit. Um, so you, first you say that th th there is a kind of subjective um, element that uh, the actors themselves uh, don't have the capacities or competences to exercise uh, critical practices or not necessarily have these um, capacities or uh, have them not equally distributed. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, you say that the, the social conditions of critical practices, the, the kind of objective side of, of uh, critical practices, um, can simply hinder uh, the actors to uh, really do Critique um, is is that a kind of correct uh, summary? Yeah, no, that's exactly what I want to say. So it's you know it's it's both 
uh, about the presuppositions on the side of the subjects. So that's what I mean with subjective. It's not in the sense of it's somewhat subjective, but it's on the side of the subject. We have to presuppose certain capacities and uh, the development and the exercise of those capacities um, always has social conditions, right? And uh, and so that's the first set of conditions that we have to look at. We cannot just stipulate that they that they exist. And then the second one is indeed that that, that there are practices of critique that subjects with such capacities can engage in, and that these are not um, sort of completely ineffective, but that they have um, you know that they are situated in a social context in which they potentially at least have an effect as well. And that's the kind of objective uh, condition. I mean, in Bortowski's vocabulary, I mean, he basically says, as I, as I mentioned, that there's always a plurality of practices of critique and regimes of justification. Yeah? But again, I think this might be true in most circumstances, but that plurality can be very selective, it can be highly restricted, and it can be in some contexts maybe even collapsed if you, know, you have a hegemonic regime of justification or if you have something like ideology, that's precisely a situation in which um, that plurality of practices of critique and justification that are open to the agents is highly restricted, is uh, streamlined, you know, is uh, homogenized, might not actually be what it appears, etc. Uh, and so I, in a way, argue that we need to reintroduce some of the vocabulary that you know Bourdieu and other critical theorists who followed the more the, the model of asymmetry that they used, you know, even like false consciousness and ideology, we have to reintroduce that vocabulary now on a different basis, sort of after learning our pragmat pragmatic or pragmatist lesson from uh, Bortowski and others. But we need that vocabulary in order to account for these structural restrictions that agents um, might be under. So then now the, the listener might ask... Um... Is this then a return to the break, or is this an, a clever avoidance of the break, or is it a break on a on a different level? Yeah, so basically, it's it's not a return to the model of the break because I think that model really does suffer from uh, the, you know the structural problems that I point out in the first part, and I do think that um, the model of symmetry and uh, the kind of methodological egalitarianism I discuss in the second part holds an extremely important uh, lesson for any critical theory, namely that these practices of critique should be um, its starting point. Um, and so the, the, the third part is really devoted to developing what I would call a non-paternalistic, pragmatist and dialogical model of critical theory that does take ordinary agents, their critical capacities and the practices of critique they engage in seriously but without giving up the emancipatory task and the important critical role that critical theory uh, can and has to play. So uh, I try to show that, uh, you know, that critical theory uh, precisely finds its important role in analyzing and criticizing um, the structural obstacles to both the development and the exercise of these critical capacities um, structural obstacles that prevent practices uh, of critique from emerging or from being effective. And um, it needs to uh, account for the possibility of such structural restrictions that block the development and or the exercise of reflexive capacities of ordinary agents in practices of critique. Such obstacles, I argue, 
can be understood as what I call second-order pathologies or second-order problems because they block first-order forms of critique from emerging or from being effective. And that um, manifests uh, itself in a kind of structural reflexivity deficit, as I argue, on the part of the agent. So in focusing on these deficits or on these blockades or obstacles, um, my understanding of critical theory can be uh, characterized as a metacritical approach, metacritique in the sense of it's a it's a critique in the it's a critique of critique, but critique now in the sense of of uh, the Kantian understanding of critique, critique as an, an an analysis of the conditions of possibility, but also of the conditions of impossibility of ordinary critique. So um, it aims at establishing or re-establishing the possibility of everyday practices. Of critique. That's what critical theory, in my view, is primarily about. It's not so much about a substantial um, idea of um, you know, how the good or the just society should look like. Rather, it's about removing the obstacles that keep agents themselves from engaging in practices of critique, from engaging in changing society for the better, from engaging in developing these ideas of the good or the just um, society. And I, I, I try to show how this model can be uh, substantialized uh, following insights articulated both by the, the young Habermas when he argues that there's a methodological um, similarity between psychoanalysis and critical theory. But I also try to uh, show how it can build on the work of W.E.B. Du Bois, um, you know, who's interested in uh, the kind of effects of structural racism on um, the, the psychological capacities, on the consciousness of um, uh, dominated subjects, but who's also interested in the critical capacities that might result from such domination. Yeah? And I try to show how um, critical theory can really, in a kind of interdisciplinary and dialogical um, way, build on the experiences of um, oppressed people, of oppressed agents, uh, without uncritically following um, uh, their uh, own standpoint, so it's you know it's it's a kind of it's a relation of tension that results from it, but it's that that tension precisely that makes uh, the interaction between critical theory and ordinary agents, between critical theory and social movements, etc., so productive in my view. So I, I try to understand the idea of metacritic a little bit in more detail. Um, w would you agree that it is a f it is uh, fair to say that on the object level of the agent's criticism, the social critic, as an academic, uh, has no right to interfere and say, "Oh no, you're wrong. You're guided by false consciousness. I know it better than you do." But so there, you completely follow the model of symmetry. Uh, whereas on the meta level, you kind of follow the the model of the break by saying that, of course, the the critical capacities and also the social conditions to exercise uh, these uh, critical practice practices, uh, the agents cannot ha uh, have a full understanding of because they are of course emerged in the uh, in their social practices. So here you kind of follow the model of the break, right? 
Um, yeah, that's 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 um, one way uh, to to put it. I mean, you can I also think... say no. I'm wrong. That's oh, also no, okay. I think, <laughs> um, no, I think that's actually it's a it's a useful way to look at it. But maybe I can I can come at it from a different um, different angle. So I think that actually um, many of the concepts that critical theory has developed in order to diagnose and criticize these structural obstacles are in a way second order concepts, right? So we can maybe use ideology uh, as an example, but I think the same is true for alienation or reification. So ideology makes it difficult, if not impossible for agents to recognize their own uh, situation and to assess its effects uh, on themselves and also their own participation in reproducing um, you know, relations of uh, domination. Um, now, I think that ideologies are never total, uh, so that's a difference with uh, some of the um, you know more orthodox critical theory uh, crowds. So, with certain readings of Marx, uh, with as I read Bourdieu, but also with uh, some understandings of Adorno and his idea of a um, totaler Verblendungszusammenhang of a complete uh, immersion of consciousness in falsity. Um, and, and delusion. I think that's not really the situation. Ideology always operates in a more fragmented way and leaves open uh, the uh, possibility of you know, critical consciousness emerging amongst those who are subject to ideology. So it, it, it does affect the possibility of critique, but it never entirely um, represses it or makes it impossible, I would argue. But it's still it's a second-order phenomenon because it affects the ability of agents to engage in critique. So ideologies are problematic, not because they are unjust or because they, they um, you know, are somehow uh, keeping people from fulfilling their um, substantial desires or so. That might be the case. But what is really problematic is they, that they uh, block the first order attempts of people to make sense of their own situation and to, um, uh, to respond to it. You know, and to ask the question how, for example, society should be organized themselves. And in that sense, um, I talk about meta-critique. Um, you could also say it's a procedural turn, as it were. The task is not so much to replace a mistaken or distorted view of social reality with one that is correct. Now, that's the, the kind of Bourdieuian uh, model of the break that I, that I reject. And neither is the idea that we need to develop a kind of substantial vision of how society should be organized. And that's, what, that's maybe what mainstream political philosophy does when it thinks about what the ideally just society should look like. But rather, the task of critical theory is metacritical in the sense that it aims to make it possible for agents themselves to ask these questions, to collectively look for answers to these questions themselves. And I think that's precisely also what, in his better moments, at least Freud said about psychoanalysis. He said, my job is not to tell people how to live. My job is to enable them to ask that question and to answer it for themselves in a way that is not restricted by all these constraints that they have internalized. Yeah. Now, of course, you could uh, respond that this form of metacritique in a way is insufficient, that we need a more substantial sense of, of uh, where to go. But I think... Um, that would really mis be a mistake to think that the theorist or theory is somehow best um, situated to do that. I think uh, that's you know essentially a task for everyone, and critical theory can uh, I think make its important but uh, also limited contribution to that task in a way by um, 
identifying the obstacles that stand in its way. It's not there to legislate how we are to organize society. It's there to identify uh, the structural obstacles that keep people uh, from thinking about these issues and answering these questions uh, themselves. We can maybe um, illustrate this a bit uh, in more detail when we look at um, uh, you know, how some classical critical theorists have uh, discussed the issue of um, um, the critique of what is sometimes called false needs, yeah? also falsche Bedürfnisse in, 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 in German, false needs in English. So um, Herbert Marcuse, who is of course a very famous first-generation critical theorist, he thinks that uh, we need a kind of substantial critique of which needs capitalism has produced and we have to show that these are false because they are you know, not grounded in human nature. Now, obviously, this does um, presuppose a pretty substantial understanding of what human nature is that the critical theorist somehow has access to. And the critical theorist's job is then to say to people, look, the needs that you developed are wrong. They are false needs. And here is why. Um, uh, and I think that's really the absolutely wrong model uh, to go about. I think Nancy Fraser in the 80s already has has rightly shown that what is much more important is to look at the conditions under which people um, interpret their own needs, ascribe needs to each other, and can also contest um, you know, the way in which needs are interpreted and um, attributed. So it's a, it's a it's a it's procedural in the in the sense in which critical theory has to criticize the blockades and distortions that keep agents from interpreting and articulating their own needs. It's it's not supposed to be substantial in the sense of telling them um, how to do it exactly or what needs to uh, to develop or regard as their as their own. So this kind of meta critique um, moving to the second level or this kind of procedural turn is really motivated by an attempt to reduce the risk of a kind of authoritarian or paternalistic um, tendency in critical theory that is very much alive still today, I think, and which basically has this anti-emancipatory effect of, um, uh, you know, to put it bluntly, disenfranchising ordinary agents because they are just judgmental dopes and wouldn't know what is, in a way, uh, good for them. Um, so in that sense, I think... Um, how you put it is is correct. So there's no um, break on the level of um, you know substantial claims about uh, either society, how it should be organized, or about individuals, their needs, or how they should lead their lives. Um, but there is a potential break, and I will qualify that in a moment, or a potential asymmetry in the ways in which uh, agents are themselves able to engage with these issues. Um, so in, in, in the way in which they either developed or exercised their, their capacities. But that break is also different from the model of the break in the first uh, part because these asymmetries, they are, they are partial, so they're not, not total, right? And they are temporary. Um, so let me just say something briefly about both of these and then I'm, I'm curious what you think of it. So, I mean, they are, they are partial in the sense of um, we cannot assume that it's always the critical theorist that uh, somehow has, um, you know, the, the fuller realization of um, uh, critical capacities. Very often it's, it's the ordinary agents themselves and the critical theorist should learn from their practices of critique, right? Um, but in some situations, it's... Um, the agent's capacities that are subject to structural restrictions that the critical theorist might help diagnose. So it's partial 
and it's not uh, one-sided, as it were, the asymmetry in question. It's also temporary because um, uh, in in the, in, in, in the classical model of the break, there seems to be uh, a structural reason for why agents are not able to make that shift, uh, for why when they are engaged in practice, when they are um, on the level of everyday consciousness, they cannot make, um, you know, cannot take up the standpoint of critique. But in, in, in the model that I tried to develop, there is no such uh, impossibility, but rather um, the standpoint of critique and even critical theory as a practice is already one that is embedded in and can only exist in um, the realm of everyday practices, right? It's a possibility that is built into that realm itself. It's not something that um, uh, exists only outside of that, of that realm. Um, and, and in that sense, it's a temporary asymmetry because agents move back and forth and they, they, they can um, you know, develop and exercise these capacities um, maybe sometimes with the help of critical theory, sometimes um, you know, they, they are able to help themselves and social movements play an important role here, forms of consciousness raising, etc. that might be inspired by critical theory, but um, that are still distinct uh, from it. So all these, um, the, the, there is no break, in other words, right? There are temporary and partial asymmetries, and these are important to keep in mind because that's where critical theory, um, as theory also plays a role and a critical role, um, but it's not uh, having this kind of exclusive monopolistic claim on critique as uh, it, it has in the first model. So my final substantial uh, question is, as I said, I'm, I'm uh, doing a philosophy of education and working also in, a, in an education department. And um, there often the question is, of course, uh, for example, if you want to be critical about schools. Right, and if I now apply your model of uh, distinguishing the the levels of critique between on, on object level and then the meta level, uh, the question arises for me really: How can I know on which level I should operate? Or to put it more concretely, when can I follow the actors? When can I um, Uh, trust them then that, that they that they know what they are talking about and when can I say well hey I as a critical uh, uh, researcher I know that now in your criticism uh, the there is the issue that you either don't have the full capacity or the social condition is not right that you can um, really engage in the the critical exercise How, how can I know on, on, on which level uh, I should operate? So, um, I mean, my view is that there's no general answer to that. It's, it's um, part of the, also to a certain extent, experimental and um, necessarily pragmatist nature of critical theory that you do have to start in medias res, as it were, right? And you have to um, start with, I would say, the practices of critique, the oppositional forms of consciousness um, and the critical capacities that are already, um, you know, out there that agents uh, have and that are, they are engaged in. And, um, uh, you know, I think that um, this, uh, what, what Raymond Goyce called the critical theorist's nightmare, the situation in which society is completely integrated and everyone is so um, much under the spell of ideology that there are no practices of critique, that there are no 
forms of critical consciousness. That's a very unlikely and historically basically non-existent uh, scenario. So there's always, in other words, a starting point that uh, critical theory can um, can uh, you know start from. Uh, and then um, it depends uh, on the concrete situation, whether um, you think that, um, uh, you know, what exactly the role is that critical theory needs to play. I mean, one of the, one of the problems that I think my, my own discussion in, in, uh, in, in the chapter um, at the end still suffers from, that this seems to operate with a rather strict still dichotomy or distinction between the critical theorist who's sort of, you know, free-floating and waits for um, social agents to get in touch and to see whether he can somehow help them. Um, and uh, on the other hand, sort of ordinary agents or social movements maybe who, who engage in their own practices of critique. But that is actually a misunderstanding or that's not how I envision um, the situation. You know, I think that um, in a certain sense, um, ordinary agents themselves can be seen as critical theorists, especially if they engage in, um, uh, you know, very complex um, practices of critique, for example, in the context of social movements. Um, theories obviously circulate, um, so certain theories come to inform actually existing social practices ordinary agents engage in, um, you know, and, uh, and the the way in which the vocabulary of psychoanalysis, um, Marxist theory, even Bourdieu's theory has been circulating in society would be an example uh, for that. And at the same time, critical theorists are not just, um, you know, theorists or academics, but they are very often uh, organic intellectuals, one could say, um, that uh, that uh, do not necessarily have to be academics even, but that that engage in their work uh, often against the background of movements they are um, they are part of. And in this respect, I think we can we can also learn a lot from uh, from um, you know feminism and critical race theory, uh, where a lot of the uh, theorists in these in these fields of of uh, of philosophy and of, of theory um, are themselves, um, uh, you know, very much members of the movements that they then also try to contribute to uh, with their theory. So we shouldn't think of this as a kind of dichotomistic relationship. Uh, but most importantly, I think, and that's also something that uh, one can learn both from, uh, for example, black feminist, feminist theorizing that I didn't uh, yet take into account when I wrote the book uh, in the uh, late 2000s, um, uh, but that, that I'm that I'm sort of more interested in, have became more interested in recent years. Um, you know, black feminists like uh, Patricia Hill Collins have have shown that um, it's 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 a problematic prejudice on behalf of some critical theorists to think that those who are subject to domination don't engage in critique, don't develop their own forms of critical consciousness, don't develop their own forms of resistance. It's a point that Foucault also makes in a certain sense, right? There's, where, where there's power, there's also resistance. And I think we have to start start from there. Now, how to uh, apply that to the school and to the educational setting that you have been talking about is a different question. One, I'm not entirely sure I'm qualified to to answer, but I would think, and that's maybe my own experience as uh, you know, a high school student with teachers, uh, but also maybe as a teacher now at the university, that, um, and it's a point that Rancière also makes, right, in his own writing on education, that you will never really get to um, uh, to realize the emancipatory potential of knowledge when you start from the assumption that uh, those you teach don't know anything, 
or that they are not really capable of um, uh, you know critical consciousness uh, on their own that they need you to basically lift uh, them up that you, they need you to lead them to the truth out of the cave as it were in the platonic metaphor then you will actually really prevent any kind of development of critical um, knowledge and critical consciousness so what you need is to you need to a certain extent also in those settings I think start from the methodological, Egalitarianism start from the assumption that um, agents, you know, students in this in this particular case are already capable of these forms of uh, reflection and understand um, the teaching situation also as one that is necessarily dialogical. I mean, of course, this will also involve temporary asymmetries. I mean, there are certain things that the teacher, precisely because of the training um, she has gone through, of the time she can. Um, invest in, uh, you know, preparing, etc. knows that the students don't know. Otherwise, you know, why would they be there to a certain extent? But that is never a kind of um, a total asymmetry or a complete um, inequality. It rather presupposes symmetry and equality on all kinds of levels. And also the realization that in many respects, it's the students from whom the teachers also have to learn. So I think the um, the complexity of the situation between uh, the critical theorist and um, the addressees or ordinary agents, or however you want to call them, and um, the complexity of the relation between a teacher and a student might be similar in this in this respect. Yeah? Although um, I, I would hesitate to you know compare the critical theorist to a teacher precisely in order to avoid uh, these problematic implications of um, um, you know. The, let's say, the, the kind of pedagogical vision of, of critical theory. I don't think that, that that's um, uh, how we should think about it. But on the other hand, I do think that my pragmatist, dialogical, non-paternalistic um, understanding of critical theory might have um, maybe interesting implications for how to uh, think about um, the teacher-student relation as well. And I mean, you, you're familiar with Rostian's work, of course, and you know that he saw a kind of close connection between rejecting a certain platonic understanding of philosophy and of the knowledge that informs critical theory um, on the one hand, and on the other hand, rejecting a certain understanding of the teacher as the one who puts knowledge into uh, the students that are just, you know, the kind of empty um, addressees that don't know anything yet and that, that are waiting to be turned into the right direction. So that's the picture to avoid, I guess, both in critical theory and in pedagogy. I could I could uh, talk a lot more about this, yeah. but uh, we've taken up a lot of your time already. My my last question is, uh, what are you currently working on, Robin? Yeah, so I mean, I you know, as I said, this book has been originally published in German in two thousand nine already, so a lot of time has passed. I'm still obviously interested in questions of critical theory and. I spend a lot of time thinking about uh, different practices of critique and of resistance. Um, in the book, I primarily address um, the kind of obstacles that keep agents from, um, uh, you know, developing and exercising critical capacities. I became more interested also in what happens once they engage in practices of resistance, such as civil disobedience, social movements, etc., and what obstacles these practices then run into. So uh, I worked quite a lot on civil disobedience and other practices of resistance, and I try to, um, you know, come to a, a 
kind of radically democratic, again, non-paternalistic understanding of the role of these practices in our uh, very imperfect uh, democracies, and uh, also move a bit beyond uh, the philosophical discussion of these practices that is, again, often uh, you know quite uninformed, let's say, by the actual uh, reality of these practices on the ground. So again, I try to learn from uh, from people who are actually engaged in, in disobedience in social movements and see uh, what uh, we can learn for a critical theory of political protest from them. And so that's a book I'm writing at the moment. It's um, tentatively entitled Democratizing Disobedience Towards a Critical Theory of Political Protest. And while there is a clear connection with the earlier book, I think it really um, uh, you know, uh, turns to a quite different um, uh, a quite different sense of practices of critique, namely one that has a primarily um, political reality in social movements and their their forms of uh, forms of resistance. But I'm also interested in the kind of ideologies and other structural obstacles that then prevent social movements from really unfolding their emancipatory uh, potential. So I see a role for critical theory um, here as well. I also became more and more interested in issues of migration and um, also racism uh, in our societies, um, partly due to my own personal uh, background. Um, I'm German-Turkish, and as you can imagine, this um, this from early on has also played a role in how I experience social reality and the many uh, problems of um, also racism that you know German society is facing. Although uh, Germany for a long time has tended to discuss or see racism only in other places, um, in the U.S. and maybe in South Africa, etc. But um, it, it it has become a quite um, you know hot topic in public debates. There's a lot of anti-racist organizing, which I think is very inspiring, and I'm very interested in how we um, should, from a critical theory perspective, address um, you know structural forms of racism and their own ways in which they inhibit practices of critique and the exercise of critical capacities um, in in the German and the European context. Right. I mean, I think there's a lot to learn from. Uh, the critical philosophy of race and racism uh, from the U.S., but it's also clear that um, the historical, social, cultural, etc. context in Germany and in Europe maybe is is quite different. So I'm working with with other people together on how to um, you know think about racism, migration, anti-migration sentiments, and activism in German society, and what kinds of solidarity we could oppose to them. Not just on a theoretical level, but you know, as a kind of practical form of of uh, anti-racist uh, organizing and critical theorizing. So these are a couple of the issues I'm I'm interested in. There's a lot more, um, but I won't go into the details. And I just want to yeah thank you for this really fascinating um, for your great questions and for the uh, ability to talk about the book. And I mean, you know, as you said, there's a lot more to talk about. I would like to hear your other questions, but. Uh, probably we're already uh, at the end of the the time we can use for this. So huge questions left, but uh, Robin, thank you very much. Thank you. It was really a pleasure to be here. <laughs>